This is uh, Dr. Pedro Ramirez, Editor-in-Chief of the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer. And today I have the great pleasure of speaking with Dr. Greg Nelson, a colleague and friend. Uh, he's at the Division of Gynecologic Oncology at the Tom Baker Cancer Center in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Uh, Greg has been uh, a leader in the field of enhanced recovery after surgery and certainly has led the, uh, the, the strategy of the guidelines for the Enhanced Recovery Society as it pertains to uh, gynecology surgery and gynecologic oncology. So it is absolutely a uh, pleasure to speak with uh, Greg Nelson this morning on the updated guidelines, the 2019 guidelines for enhanced recovery after surgery. Greg, welcome. Thank you so much, uh, Pedro. Great to be here. Thanks for uh, inviting me. Of course. So, Greg, let's get right to it. Um, obviously, this is a topic that has impacted the field of uh, not only gynecologic oncology surgery, but uh, many surgical specialties. Um, so let's start by just asking you to give us a, a, an overview as to why these guidelines are important in, in our field and, and why the update on the guidelines. Sure, absolutely. Um, so I think just, you know, I think we would all appreciate that, you know, ERAS is now firmly established as a global surgical quality improvement initiative. Uh, we know that this results in uh, both clinical improvements and cost benefits to the healthcare system. And certainly a number of uh, centers internationally have adopted ERAS in gynecology and gynecologic oncology, but I think there's still lots of work to be done. Uh, we would all accept that there's still quite uh, tremendous variation in how patients are cared for uh, in the preoperative, intraoperative, and postoperative surgical periods. And uh, still to this day, you know, we see a lot of variation in care when we compare between surgeons, between institutions, and even more so between countries. So I would say the main purpose of these guidelines is, is really to provide a unified document where healthcare providers can access essentially the most up-to-date information on surgical care for patients with gynecologic cancer. And so the hope is that the more people that use these guidelines, the more we'll see a decrease in variation of practice and you specifically see a decrease in uh, perhaps some of the historical surgical practices that lack evidence, things like prolonged fasting prior to surgery or, you know, withholding food after surgery. So ERAS guidelines are typically updated every few years, uh, and so this represents the first update to the original guidelines, which were published in 2016. It's been uh, quite impacting. Uh, the guidelines for those who have not had an opportunity to view them are, are published in the uh, International Journal of Gynecological Cancer uh, online first. Uh, they were published and they have been published since uh, March of, uh, of 2019, uh, March 14th to be more specific. Um, interestingly, in the last two weeks, they have had a total of 1,250 downloads. So certainly this is uh, of uh, significant uh, interest to, to the community. So one of the things that I saw in the guidelines that were uh, addressing uh, the issue of preoperative education and counseling, um, and w why do you see this as, as such an important item uh, in, in these guidelines? 
So, you know, preoperative education, I think, in, and preoperative education and counseling is absolutely essential um, and, in fact, is often neglected. And, you know, I think the reason why it's so important, it's because this is a time when you, as the surgeon, has the opportunity to engage with your patient and include them in their own surgical recovery. Um, you know, an example of this would be to inform your patient what to expect after surgery. And, and this may not have been done in any comprehensive way in the past. So, you know, I'll, just from a personal uh, perspective, I'll tell, usually tell my patients that, you know, they're going to be managed on an ERAS pathway. This involves getting up and walking around shortly after surgery, having their uh, Foley catheter out. They'll often be offered food right away. And typically their pain will be managed with non-narcotic oral medications. Most patients um, are really quite surprised by this, and oftentimes based on maybe previous surgery they've had or experiences with family members but you know they're often very excited to be part of this program and are you know are willing to do their best to to contribute I, I find that most patients are also very keen to do homework so if you give them you know literature on ERAS leading up to their surgery most will will read it and you know complete their preoperative instructions so you know I think the um, in the past we really have maybe ignored that component but a patient that is engaged in an ERAS program is one that will typically uh, recover better yeah, I completely agree. I think that uh, it also leads to a, a much higher compliance in the in the perioperative uh, period when the patients have had this information ahead of time. Absolutely. Now, um, another subject that I saw was uh, new in uh, in terms of the uh, recommendations for the for the enhanced recovery guidelines was uh, the emphasis on on this principle of prehabilitation. This is a, a concept that is not familiar uh, for many in our listening audience. Um, I was wondering if you could please provide just an overview. And secondly, w what do you think might be the barriers to implementing a prehabilitation program as part of enhanced recovery? Sure. So prehabilitation, just from a uh, in general terms, this is something where um, what we're trying to do is we're, the aim is to optimize a patient's physical and mental well-being uh, in anticipation of a stressful event such as major surgery. So um, it's doing something before the event as opposed to uh, after, such as, you know, in rehabilitation. And so in general, Prehab programs tend to focus on four main areas, uh, so typically some form of uh, aerobic or resistance exercise to improve physical functioning. There's usually a targeted, uh, targeted exercises to uh, prevent impairments. Uh, there's usually a dietary intervention of some kind to, um, with the idea being to diminish uh, disease-related malnutrition. And then often a very important component is a, some sort of psychological intervention to uh, encourage overall uh, well-being. So, I mean, prehab programs have shown benefit from the standpoint of decreasing length of stay and complications, but these studies um, have primarily been in uh, colorectal surgery. 
um, I think, you know, within our discipline, um, we're always so focused on getting our patients with cancer to surgery as soon as possible. Uh, so, you know, some have kind of argued that how do we actually incorporate a prehab program uh, into our discipline? I think certainly there's the opportunity um, in some patient populations, uh, such as those with advanced ovarian cancer, who uh, will be undergoing, you know, quite a number of weeks of neoadjuvant chemotherapy who may be able to benefit from prehabilitation. But I think we definitely need more research in this area. Yes, I think I agree. Uh, and, uh, and I think that certainly it is um, a principle that is appealing to, to most uh, uh, patients and, and, and physicians. And I think it's just a matter of uh, creating the infrastructure to assure that these uh, programs are um, incorporated into the enhanced recovery pathway. Now, uh, a, a separate subject and one that I know there's very strong opinions about this is the issue of bowel prep. And, and I think that this is, a, this is a discussion that is truly ongoing at every single enhanced recovery conference that, that I attend. Mm-hmm. Um, where do we stand today on the subject of bowel prep? Uh, I know that most enhanced recovery programs uh, aim to either completely eliminate the principle of bowel prep um, or discourage it. And uh, I was wondering if you can just tell us where do we stand today on this subject and and can you specifically address the the mechanical versus the oral bowel prep? Sure. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, Bowel prep um, is a very, very hot topic, very, very controversial, lots of opinions certainly. So I think, you know, just again to give some background to our listeners, um, preoperative mechanical bowel preparation uh, traditionally was used uh, with the assumption that essentially the reduction in stool load uh, would decrease postoperative infections and anastomotic leak. The problem is is that mechanical bowel prep is associated with uh, significant patient dissatisfaction. Um, in particular, is also associated with preoperative dehydration and also electrolyte abnormalities. So it's certainly not without its um, negative aspects. Um, so, I mean, if we just kind of look at the literature from a sort of an overall highlight uh, standpoint, we do have randomized controlled trials on the use of bowel preparation in minimally invasive gynecologic surgery. And these studies quite clearly show that it's not associated with any improvement in intraoperative visualization or uh, ease of bowel handling. There's certainly less data available in open gynecologic oncology surgery, and so we've typically looked to see what's happening in the colorectal literature, and I would say that that's basically where a lot of the controversy comes from. So meta-analyses have shown that the use of mechanical bowel preparation on its own is not associated with a decrease in overall mortality, surgical site infection, leak rate, uh, or reoperation. Um, where the issue of oral antibiotic prep has come up is with a recent meta-analysis which showed that a combination of oral antibiotics with mechanical bowel preparation was associated with a lower rate of surgical site infection overall. But importantly, 
No randomized controlled trials have compared oral antibiotics alone to no bowel preparation, and that's basically the study that needs to be conducted. So at the present time, based on the available literature um, within the guidelines, we've been quite firm in our recommendation that states, first of all, that routine preoperative mechanical bowel preparation should really not be used before minimally invasive gynecologic surgery and is similarly discouraged before laparotomy and gynecologic oncology surgery. I mean, I personally never bowel prep in any of my cases, even in multivisceral advanced ovarian cancer cases where, you know, patients may end up with, you know, one, two, three bowel resections. Yeah, so I, I think it's, um, it's a, as you said, it's a very important point uh, and one where there may be variations in, in practice. And, and we uh, at our institution at MD Anderson um, uh, have a very similar practice to what you just described. Uh, even in the setting of laparotomy, we do not offer mechanical bowel prep, uh, but we do offer the oral antibiotic prep. Um, and that brings us then to, to another point that is uh, somewhat related, uh, and that's the issue of surgical site infection and the bundles that can be used in terms of reducing the possibility of surgical site infection. Can you tell us about these bundles and, and, and what do they mean for our patients? Absolutely. Um, so surgical site infection reduction bundles have kind of... Um, become uh, somewhat trendy over the last number of years. Um, they have you know, been demonstrated to decrease the risk of developing surgical site infections essentially in an additive fashion. So rather than just sort of focusing on the individual elements, they're brought together in, a, in an actual bundle where everyone is aware that the focus is on uh, preventing these infection. And so these surgical site infection reduction bundles, they include a number of elements, um, things such as antimicrobial prophylaxis, uh, skin preparation, uh, the anesthesiologist is involved in terms of avoiding hypothermia, uh, we want to avoid surgical drains. Um, there's also an emphasis on reducing uh, perioperative hyperglycemia. Um, there are a couple of studies, I think, just briefly worth mentioning. Um, there is one from uh, MD Anderson called the Disinfect Initiative, essentially um, looking at uh, the impact of a SSI reduction bundle. Uh, and that uh, resulted in a decrease in SSI from, I believe, around 12.5% down to just over 7%. And then there was another Canadian study by Hopkins where they actually, uh, it really emphasized the importance of controlling perioperative hyperglycemia, where they actually implemented uh, quite a comprehensive multidisciplinary initiative where they looked at uh, key components such as uh, looking at preoperative hemoglobin A1C, and then they triaged patients um, according to that. And then they also had a rigorous uh, glucose monitoring um, initiative where uh, they put uh, targets to maintain blood glucose at less than 180. And this initiative resulted in a decrease in surgical site infections from around 15% uh, down to 6%. I think just from a practical level, I think if institutions identify that they have a high SSI rate, I think it's, it can be relatively straightforward for them to adopt these bundles as a quality improvement project. And I think it's important because it can be embraced by all the healthcare providers along the entire continuum of the patient's surgical journey. So you can actually engage nurses, anesthesiologists, and surgeons to you know, contribute to these bundles. So 
Yeah. No, I think that you're absolutely right, and I think that uh, they're they're very impacting in terms of the the outcomes, as you mentioned. Now, shifting gears a little bit to our colleagues in anesthesia, and uh, of course, obviously, we hear about the uh, potential role of what is known as goal-directed fluid therapy and total intravenous anesthesia. But these have been uh, topics uh, that are uh, quite controversial, or at least becoming quite controversial. There were two recent studies in the New England Journal of Medicine um, addressing these, uh, these principles. Can you describe for our audience uh, a little bit about what is goal-directed therapy and, and what is uh, the, the principle of total intravenous anesthesia, and how does this impact ERAST today? Sure. So, I mean, basically, um, when we look at goal-directed fluid therapy, I mean, it's primarily uh, used in the context of um, high-risk surgical patients, patients who, you know, are maybe prone to having significant amount of blood loss and is, is essentially a technique used to manage uh, hemodynamics with uh, fluids and inotropes to improve tissue perfusion and oxygenation. Um, we do know that from several studies, this has been associated with improvements in um, short and long-term uh, outcomes. The interesting thing is that um, when we look at goal-directed fluid therapy uh, in, in patients who are on ERAS pathways, theoretically, it's, you know, it should be easier to or simpler to implement you know, compared with patients who are on traditional surgical pathways. And it's primarily because of the fact that patients on an ERAS pathway are, are not exposed to prolonged periods of fasting or mechanical bowel preparations. Um, they're you know, typically given carbohydrate loading uh, before surgery. And essentially, these components of the ERAS program allow for uh, better hydration and uh, normal intravascular volume status. Um, the one of the trials you mentioned, uh, the relief trial by uh, Miles and colleagues, where they kind of they essentially looked at um, a liberal fluid group versus a restrictive fluid group. Um, you know, essentially, this was this was a very important study. There was uh, certainly some uh, very interesting findings in that the liberal fluid group had a lower rate of acute kidney injury and surgical site infection. But I think when we look more specifically at the details within this study, um, I think really the take-home message is that really the main learning from this study is the emphasis on achieving euvolemia uh, and to not have your patient um, either, you know, hypo or uh, hypervolemic. So I think, you know, again, it continues to reemphasize that patients on an ERAS pathway, there's a number of measures that are taken to help to ensure that the patient comes into surgery um, in uh, having a normal uh, volume status. I see. And, and, um, and then along with those, those lines, and um, are, are, is this something that in your institution the anesthesiologists are, are still implementing? So I would say that um, goal-directed fluid therapy, uh, at least when I uh, discuss with our local ERAS anesthesiologist, is really 
primarily reserved for uh, patients who have um, significant uh, medical comorbidities, uh, you know, patients for whatever reason, you know, may uh, be coming in, um, you know, under loaded or, you know, they, they, they can't really use traditional measures to uh, measure volume status. So I think consistent with um, our guidelines, uh, we really said that, you know, this is something that uh, should be reserved for, you know, for those high-risk patients. So, you know, the, the patient who comes in to have the laparoscopic staging for organ-confined uterine cancer, it's a healthy individual, that individual likely does not require uh, a formal goal-directed fluid therapy approach. Very well. And um, what's the, uh, where do we stand today, and, and particularly in your practice as it pertains to the total intravenous anesthesia um, as a general rule for uh, patients undergoing uh, ERAS uh, uh, pathway surgery? So um, total intravenous anesthesia, which is essentially an alternative to uh, sort of a traditional um, uh, general anesthetic or inhalational anesthetic approach, uh, combines several intravenous anesthetic agents, um, such, you know, examples being ketamine, lidocaine, uh, dexmedetomidine. I would say that, you know, from a, uh, a global uh, ERAS uh, perspective, um, you know, th there still is a, a tremendous amount of variation in terms of TIVA uh, versus um, standard uh, inhalational or volatile anesthetic. Um, locally, um, you know, our anesthesiologists uh, really just use this uh, on a case-by-case -case basis. I know at other centers, I think such as your center and others, there tends to be a more structured approach to, uh, to using TIVA. Um, this recent trial that you uh, described, this Landoni trial that uh, looked at uh, inhalational versus uh, total intravenous anesthetic uh, in uh, coronary artery bypass surgery patients, they actually identified uh, no difference uh, in mortality uh, at one year. But I think moving forward, if, if we're going to be looking at this in more detail, we, we probably should be performing a similar trial in cancer patients. And I think it'll also be important to study other outcomes, uh, you know, such as recurrence-free survival, complications, and things like cognitive function. Um, but, I, you know, I would encourage listeners to refer to the standard anesthetic protocol section of our guidelines if they want some more information on these topics. Okay. Um, so, Greg, wanting to uh, change a, a little bit of gears now and talking about um, the patient-reported outcomes. And, uh, and I know that certainly uh, many are familiar with this uh, principle. Uh, for those that are not, can you just uh, give a brief overview of what um, patient-reported outcomes are and how do they serve our body of information on enhanced recovery? Absolutely. So, Historically, our emphasis within ERAS has been on what we would call core clinical outcomes. And so those include things such as reduction in length of stay, uh, complications, uh, readmissions. I think, though, that there's you know, an increased recognition now that we need to make sure that we include the patient in the conversation, particularly when we're designing uh, and implementing our ERAS protocols and pathways. Um, it basically, it's very possible that although, you know, evidence may point us in one direction, 
this particular element could be associated with uh, poor patient satisfaction. So an example is, you know, locally with the use of oral nutritional supplements in the early postoperative period, um, I've heard from countless patients that these supplements are, you know, quite distasteful and in fact are associated with high patient dissatisfaction. So, you know, we need to be aware that patients, um, you know, uh, may not actually uh, be happy with some of the ERAS implements uh, or elements that we're implementing. So we are starting to make um, greater efforts to examine um, actual patient-reported outcome measures. So there's a number of examples. Um, you know, certainly MD Anderson has published on this. Um, but bottom line is I think we need to be starting to incorporate more formally uh, patient-reported outcome measures or PROMs or patient-reported experience measures or PREMs uh, in, our, in the auditing of our actual programs. Fantastic. Um, and um, I saw that the new guidelines offer now actually some um, comments regarding major surgeries like pelvic exenterations and, um, and uh, intraperitoneal uh, hyperthermic uh, chemotherapy, uh, HIPEC. Um, your thoughts regarding uh, these uh, these these approaches in in in, in the setting of high complexity surgery, and, and I know I ask because one one of the questions that often comes up is, well, is enhanced recovery for just the low complexity surgeries, or should we apply this principle also to high complexity surgery cases? That's a really great question. Um, I think you know, as a general rule. Um, ERAS can and should be applied uh, in some uh, uh, capacity to, to all surgeries, whether very, very low complexity surgery all the way up to high complexity surgery, such as those you've just described. Um, the reason why we included this in the new ERAS guidelines is, we, is because we really we just wanted to start the conversation. We wanted to address the concept that ERAS principles should be able to apply, be applied to all types of surgeries. Um, you know, again, I think there's great variation uh, that exists with it, uh, within institutions, um, between surgeons, in terms of how uh, patients who end up with exenterations or uh, complex site reduction with or without uh, HIPEC are managed. Um, I think the listeners, um, I'm happy to share that uh, the ERAS Society has recently formed uh, an international collaborative effort between both uh, advanced gastrointestinal surgeons, so surgical oncologists, and also gynecologic oncologists, where we're going to be starting to examine the evidence for ERAS uh, in HIPEC cases. And our hope that this guideline uh, should be available uh, this time next year. So uh, stay tuned for that. Great. And um, Greg, can you uh, tell us now uh, with regards to these discharge pathways and, and um, how specifically can this help our patients? And, and particularly, I'm interested in, in uh, reducing the opioid uh, administration and consumption. Yeah, so this is uh, something new that we incorporated this year. Again, I think the, the main purpose of this section is to um, help healthcare providers um, identify that, um, again, primarily our focus has been on um, how patients recover within hospital. But we need to recognize that 
once patients go home on post-op day three, post-op day four, after a major complex surgery, there, there's still a lot of uh, recovering that needs to occur. And so, um, you know, discharge pathways include uh, formal patient uh, education for them to go home with, uh, formal counseling on, you know, what to expect, uh, particularly with, you know, how to manage uh, things such as, uh, you know, a new ostomy, um, what to do if they have concerns around uh, their wound, uh, where there can be communication back with the surgical team so that they don't just necessarily, uh, you know, go back to see their family doctor um, or uh, the emergency department. Um, and then specifically regarding opioid administration, you know, again, I think historically, Every single patient discharged from a gynecologic oncology service, um, you know, might have received, um, you know, 30 uh, tablets of uh, narcotics and, the, you know, there was no thought given to how much narcotic they were actually uh, using, in fact, on the day before they were discharged. And so we now uh, recognize that uh, there are formal discharge pathways that um, characterize how much opioids a patient is actually receiving uh, prior to going home. And then, in fact, based on that amount, they are then given, um, you know, a certain number of um, opioids. So, for example, a patient who's who's receiving no opioids on the day prior to discharge, uh, those patients may in fact not require any or only a small amount, whereas those who are requiring quite a lot, those are the patients where, you know, typically you want to be giving them uh, some more. So those types of components are included in discharge pathways and I think are going to be a huge step forward in trying to uh, decrease the uh, opioid crisis that's uh, happening currently in North America. Great. And uh, Greg, just before closing, if you can talk, talk to us a little bit about um, tracking the data and auditing the data, uh, because obviously this is very important when implementing an enhanced recovery program. Sure. Um, so again, um, before I sort of address any updates, I, I think the main message again for listeners is that um, audit is one of the most important components of an ERAS program. So, you know, we continue to need to emphasize uh, the importance of this. I continue to see studies in the literature or, you know, when I see um, students presenting at meetings uh, where they've essentially, they've done a really great job, but they've not measured their compliance uh, to the ERAS elements within their study. And so this, unfortunately, in a number of situations ends up being a situation where you've got, you know, work perceived versus uh, work completed. So one of the updates uh, within the guidelines um, is regarding the uh, what's called the recover checklist, which is uh, stands for reporting on ERAS compliance outcomes and elements uh, research. It's a checklist that essentially is a, uh, it's a joint effort between the ERAS Society and ERAS USA. And I would encourage uh, the listeners to look at this paper to, you know, look, make sure that they're covering all the necessary components uh, within their study. I think at the end of the day, the main message is that they need to audit. Um, there's lots of different ways that you can audit, and, and that's really not really the, the main point. As long as you're auditing, that's, that's really the most important thing. Fantastic. Greg, it's been absolutely a pleasure um, hearing from you. 
uh, particularly on uh, on all of the new items of the guidelines. Um, wondering if you would like to make any closing remarks. Sure. Well, um, thank you so much again, uh, Pedro, for uh, including me. Um, I think it's uh, I think it's a really important um, topic. Um, you know, enhanced recovery is really about um, looking at all the things that we do um, to the patient and for the patient across the entire uh, surgical care continuum. And I think um, this is a dynamic process. So, you know, um, listeners can expect to see further updates of the ERAS guidelines um, over the coming years. And, and again, um, it's just a great honor to be part of this uh, program. So thank you again. Well, thank you very much again for your contribution. And for those, again, who are interested in reading the updated guidelines for Enhanced Recovery 2019, uh, we invite them to visit our journal at the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer. This is Dr. Pedro Ramirez. Thank you very much.